trying to find the on switch. A little challenged here. I'm not used to the earpiece, so bear with me. I think it goes around the ear, right? So are we okay? Okay. So I guess I gotta use that. Okay, so uh, we're not gonna speak on Revelation today. Sorry, this, I'll explain that title in a minute, but um, it's a very it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Really great to see everyone. Um, my name is, again, is Kurt Witzig. I've been uh, a pastor down in Duluth for many years and been involved there since the, uh, the early 80s, actually. So, um, But it's great to be here today and to share the Word of God with you this morning. And just want to thank, obviously, Pastor Gus and the board here for inviting me. Obviously, I'm a bit envious of Gus this morning, not only because he's in Hawaii, but also he's young enough to have a 20th anniversary. Uh, oh, to be that, that young again. Uh, but really, it's really uh, great to be here. And I've, what I'm going to be speaking on today is largely we're going to be in Second Peter chapter 3. Uh, but as uh, Brent mentioned, that we, I go have the privilege of ministering in Africa, both in uh, Zambia and Kenya. We've been going there for a number of years. Uh, a number of those times I'm accompanied by uh, Bert Spaeth. So we go there, and we are training and working with the same group of pastors. We have done that for years, and we've actually graduated a number of them. So it's kind of like a form of our Grace Institute of Biblical Studies. Um, so that does work. That we're doing there. So we're training these different uh, men and women there and, and the pastors and things. So it's been a wonderful uh, privilege to go and, and to preach and to share the gospel and to bring about a lot of uh, theological training and so forth. And so when we have recently gone back in this year, we went in April and then also in um, September to both Kenya and Zambia, our topic was the beginning of Revelation. We taught chapters 1 through 7. But what I'm going to be going through here this morning is just the first message that we would present during that Revelation series. So we're not actually in Revelation at all. We're going to talk about uh, just an overview of prophecy briefly, and then in Second Peter 3, uh, uh, some I trust will be encouraging words as far as the impact. The impact that knowing things, knowing prophecy is designed to have on our everyday life. So if you would open to Jeremiah chapter 9 this morning, we'll start there. <clears throat> Jeremiah chapter 9, and would also um, would like to start with a short word of prayer if you would. And Father, we do thank you this morning again for the privilege of gathering together, for having the opportunity to hear your word and to worship you and give you praise. We just thank you again 
for the grace that we stand in and we can be established in. We thank you for your word, which gives direction and revelation from you. And we pray, Father, that it would be, uh, you would be able to lead with all that is said here this morning and direct with the teaching and be able to impact each and every one of us in our hearts as only you can, as your spirit uses your word, so that we would be uh, impressed with you as we study today. So we just want to commit this time to you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm looking for a clock because I don't think it's in your interest that I don't see one. <laughs> Is there one that I can... Maybe not? Well, that's all right. Okay. <laughs> I usually use my phone, but I... Okay. Trying to get it away from me? Yeah. Does that work? Okay. So Jeremiah chapter 9. Now, just imagine as we, before we get started here this morning that you, let's say you knew that the World Series was just a few weeks ago it ended, but let's say that, you know, before that series even started, you knew the outcome of the World Series. You knew the winner. You knew how many games it would take and, you know, maybe some of the stats of the series and the scores. And you knew that with certainty somehow, for whatever reason, ahead of time. What impact would that have upon you? Um, At a minimum, you would have some bragging rights, perhaps a little swagger at the office as you would predict this and know this. Uh, More at a maximum, you would, if you were into gambling or something, you could play some bets, make some money, whatever, you could do that. Let's say you you knew the outcome of the, the Vikings game today. And maybe you're saying, no, thank you, I would rather not know. Um, uh, but same idea, if you knew some of these like sporting events and you knew a certainty, how you could take that advantage of that and how it could benefit you in a number of ways. Let's say even more personal, you knew the outcome. Uh, let's say you're single and you were um, having several options in terms of your, your married uh, marriage options and you knew uh, you could know ahead of time you're with this person and you could somehow know with certainty that if you were to stay with this person, it would turn into a, a veritable dumpster fire and it would be a dramatic crisis after another, one after another. Would that impact your decisions? Would that change if you knew with certainty these things? Or maybe you knew this other person was going to be one that was going to be wonderful and you'll have to be a stable relationship and all of those kinds of good things. Knowing ahead of time, wouldn't that be an advantage? And so wouldn't it be nice to know things ahead of time, to know with certainty? Because as we can see, knowledge brings confidence and a, even a sense of of power, just knowing things and having that certainty. So that's what I want to start our thinking on is this concept of certainty. Note this word has many synonyms built around it. And so you can see the understanding of certainty is going to have something like, um, does this point? Yeah, like uh, undoubtedly or definitely, um, uh, precisely, positiveness. These are all reliability. These are all synonyms and along with the concept of certainty. So with that in mind, the dictionary, if we looked it up in the dictionary, it would say that certainty is a fact that is definitely true uh, about an event or is an event that is definitely going to take place. So it's just having that, that confidence in knowing this will be. Certainty then is to know for sure. 
And as we said in our introduction, it's highly desirable if we could have certainty. But can we have certainty? Is it even possible? And so we see here in Jeremiah chapter 9, let's look at a few verses and see what the Lord is going to say here through the prophet Jeremiah, beginning in verse 23. Jeremiah 9, 23, it says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, and let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches. And glory here means to boast or to brag. So don't brag in your wisdom or your might or your riches. But, verse 24, let him who glories or brags or boasts, let him glory in this, that he understands and knows me. And if, if, in case you think that the glorying in, of, of, that you could have is because you know or it's in you somehow, the next phrase says, no, 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 it's not that you have this ability to know. It's the one you know. It's the Lord. So we're bragging and boasting not in anything of ourselves. We're bragging and boasting because we understand and know him, in particular, verse 24, that he, I am the Lord, we read, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight says the Lord. So here in the spiritual realm, we can have some certainty. This is God who's communicating to us. He is, as we know, the creator. He is the eternal and sovereign one who created all things. But really, he is saying here, you can know and understand him. And that sounds certain, doesn't it? He has revealed himself in the pages of Scripture. The Spirit of God is, is now able to write these things and, and even um, uh, lead us into understanding to the point that we can say, I know and I understand him. I know he has loving kindness and that he has judgment and righteousness. These are three attributes that stand out here in Jeremiah. Righteousness, his justice, and his love. So let's understand this. Thinking of his loving kindness in Jeremiah 9, verse 24 in the middle. He says that I am the Lord exercising, what is first? Exercising loving kindness and then judgment and righteousness in the earth. Loving kindness. This is God's heart. This is what his attribute of love and mercy combined are. Our God is a God who loves. In fact, we read in John 3.16, for example, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son and that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So here in the spiritual realm, there's truth that is now being manifested and presented to us. There is certainty that is being communicated. God so loved the world. Just a little kind of some um, clip art diagrams of this. We see that God is the creator God who created, and he is the king, he is sovereign, and he created the earth for us, as Genesis would tell us. He placed us, human beings, upon this earth. We are as vassal kings. We've been given dominion and authority over the earth but we are definitely under God's authority and his ultimate sovereignty. And therefore, we are to enjoy the Lord in a relationship while we are enjoying relationship with one another, while we are having dominion over this earth which he created and has given to us. And so this is how God has designed it. But part of this is that he also allowed us to have, relation, to have volition, rather, or choice. Because any relationship, of course, is made dynamic because of the choice. 
I, I would ask gentlemen, but maybe you, know, maybe you don't want to answer this because some might say yes, but I mean, would you want your wife to be programmed like a robot to say, I love you? <laughs> we really wouldn't care for that. You wouldn't want your mate to be programmed robotically. It's the choice. It's the volition that they said, I do that puts a a dynamic into this relationship. And God created us for relationship, which means he's created us as human beings with that choice, meaningful choice. And we choose, do we desire, do we uh, follow after the things of the Lord or not? And so we know that ultimately with that relationship that Adam and Eve in the story had the fall. And because of the fall, there now is separation. And we are no longer uh, we are separated. We're no longer under the, the, the uh, responding, rather, to the sovereignty and things of God. We're independent. We're rebellious. And this has brought sin into the world. As we know, Adam and Eve, ultimately, they made a choice to not remain under the ultimate dominion of God, but to choose to do their own thing. And so that brings a barrier. Sin entering into the world, and we know from Romans 5.12 that with sin comes death. Death meaning separation, and you see that little separation on the the little clip art. So that means we live in a fallen world. We live not as God has intended, and we are have spiritual death without that now intimate relationship with the Lord. And this is the consequence of sin because of his holiness, because of his, uh, his righteousness, But the good news in John 3.16 is that God so loved the world. He didn't design us to be separated from him. He wants us to be united and to have relationship with him, but he has to provide the means because as guilty sinners fallen and now not having righteousness of our own, there's no way for us to repair this or fix this broken relationship. It's beyond our pay grade. And so we are reliant entirely on God acting and choosing to do so, and aren't we glad that he did? As in his love he sent his only begotten son, that Jesus Christ came from heaven as a holy God come into the flesh. He's an adequate substitute to pay for our sin because he is holy and righteous through and through. And therefore, he was willing to go to a cross to become the penalty of our sin, to take upon himself the shame and the guilt that we have incurred. And he does so out of his love for us. And we know that even there he was buried after being crucified and he is resurrected. And so he's a live, living Savior who has conquered sin and death, who's offering to us eternal life through faith in him alone. That he has fixed the situation, that he has paid for our sin, that God can forgive us entirely and redeem us, and we can have this by simply putting our faith in Jesus Christ. And when we do, we then are under, again, God's relationship and under him and his authority. We now have life. We now are spiritually connected and related to the Lord, again, as children of God, born again. And this is all, again, comes by faith, meaning to trust. The only thing we can do is put our confidence and trust in what God has done for us, recognizing there is no remedy within us, but the full remedy and what God has provided, and faith in that. So if we just kind of summarize this again, we see that God has created us 
this is the way it was intended to be, but we, with our volition and our choice, we chose negatively. This created the problem of separation from him and death, and that means the world is now in death. And so the bottom uh, clip art associates with the one above it. So because of that sin, we are now separated, and the whole world is lies uh, 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 separated from God and spiritually dead. But we can... With our volition, as God has again provided a substitute, has provided a remedy, has provided a gospel message of good news through Christ, we again can choose to respond by faith and to believe in what God has done, to believe that he does indeed love me, to believe that Christ indeed has paid for my sin, to believe then that as I put my faith in him, I will not perish. And so by faith we can be uh, restored through Christ, and therefore we can live on this earth and then for eternity, as God intended at the very beginning. And so this is the gospel message. This is what John is referring to, and God so loved the world. We saw his attributes in Jeremiah 9, if you're still there. He is loving kindness. That's what that that gospel message portrays. He is loving kindness, and he is also exercising judgment and righteousness In the earth, for in these I delight, he says. He is exercising judgment and righteousness. He is holy and remains holy through and through. He never passes over our sin. He never sweeps it under a carpet. His holiness and his righteousness must be maintained, and they are maintained, and they're maintained through Christ. Christ goes to a cross. Christ receives the wrath of God. Christ takes the punishment for sin. And God's holiness is is vanquished. His wrath, his indignation towards sin and unrighteousness and the penalty of sin is all carried out successfully and fully on a substitute who was innocent and who was there on our behalf. And that is the good news. So his loving kindness is first seen there and then his judgment and his righteousness, because those were carried out on the cross, and that is where we see the good news. But what comes first in that text in John Jeremiah 9 is it's his loving kindness, because that is the entry point for us as human beings to this relationship of having restored relationship with God through Christ, of having eternal life, of being born again, of being forgiven. It all comes by connecting to and understanding his loving kindness. That's the entry portal for us and how we relate and understand the Lord. And when we have that salvation and we know that we belong to him with certainty, then we can appreciate God's holiness and his judgment and his righteousness. You see, without love and redemption, holiness is nothing but terror and fear overwhelming us because we're guilty and we know it. But with love and and, and the loving kindness of God and with faith in Christ, God's holiness becomes beautiful and awe-inspiring and something that's desired as we understand he is holy and we even can become holy because he is holy. So we can appreciate and value that holiness instead of lying in the fetal position waiting for a crushing blow of a wrathful, righteous, holy God. Because of his loving kindness, we know that we are his children and objects of his love, and we can truly appreciate and value and be impressed and awestruck by his holiness. And it's because of a relationship we have 
through Christ. So what is John 3.16 then saying? For God so loved the world. Does that sound doubtful? <clears throat> no, it's stating a fact. As we go on in the verse, we see there's a result of that, that he gave his only begotten son. This is starting with the word that, which is a uh, conjunction in the Greek, uh, hoste, and it means uh, it's introducing a dependent clause, so we know the, the main idea is God loved the world, and connecting to that thought, he's saying he loved accordingly or in order that he gave his only begotten son. So God's love is, a, is shown now, resulting from the fact of God's love is this giving of his son, which is Jesus Christ. Then we see another conjunction, but it's a different one. This is a hina conjunction. The Greek word is hina, and that always connotes, uh, brings out purpose. So now we see that God, who loves the world and has given his son, the reason for that, and the reason why is that whosoever would believe in him, the son that was given, should not perish but have eternal life. And so should not perish is, the, is what is contingent upon the main verb. The word, sometimes we ask ourselves, why does it say whoever believes in him should not perish? Doesn't that sound a little like, oh, maybe would, maybe, right? But you understand in the Greek language, the, the hina clause is always a dependent clause that its certainty is subject to the the main clause. So what is the main idea? God so loved the world. Is that true? Yes. yes. Therefore, the Hena clause, should not perish but have everlasting life, is equally true. In other words, it's certain. Now, it's translated with should because of the, uh, because of the Hena clause, and that's what you're forced to do with it. It's a, a nuance of the Greek language. But that's why modern translations pick up on this. And, for example, this neat NLT. As for this is how God loved the world, he gave his one and only son that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. That's how this verse is understood. There's no lack of certainty there. It's, uh, it's, not, it's in the subjunctive only because of a grammatical rule. The fact that God so loves the world is true means that you, whoever believes in him, will not perish. Certain. And that's the good news of the gospel. Is that really true? If you'll turn over to 1 John chapter 5, one more passage on this before we move on. 1 John 5 and verse 13, and I like how uh, verse 11 and 12 is up on, your, on, the, on the, the screen there, or on the, whatever, the wall. Uh, 1 John 5, 11 and 12, 11 will say, this is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his son. That's a statement of fact. He that has the Son has life, and he that does not have the Son of God has not life. So therefore, verse 13 now says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. These things are written. They're archived and written down so we can read them and reread them and go over them and over them. And they're written that you may know that you have eternal life. Can you have certainty? Well, what does the verse say? You can know. And who wrote that? Well, we know that God does through the Holy Spirit. Titus 1-2 reminds us that God, who cannot lie. <laughs> so God cannot lie. It's part of his attribute and his character. And he has written and recorded and given us this statement. 
So we can know that whoever believes in him will not perish from John 3. We can know from 1 John 5 that these are written so that we can know. And we know this. We can be confident. We can have that expectation and be certain. Because it is written. You know, we live in a world today where there's seemingly a lot of confusion in our general, general sense in our world. Right? People will be saying things like, I don't, I don't know what is true anymore. I don't know who to believe. I don't know what source. I can't seem to be certain about anything. The simple question to ask, though, who's the author of doubt and uncertainty? Remember in the garden? What was, what was Satan's first line of attack? Hey, Eve, has God said, do, 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 do. introducing doubt, injecting, are you sure you know this? I don't know who to believe. I don't know what, who's the doubt comes from, the, from Satan. And then we know as well in our day that there's a lot of fear and anxiety even about the future. And again, who's the author of fear? First John 4 reminds us there is no fear in love. So not God. So, huh, as we think about this, we're having our culture, whatever, our society, you know, our, our day and age is drifting on what is true and who can know and there seems to be, you know, lies and what is really true and there's fear and there's anxiety about perhaps future events and just pause and say, duh, what's the source of that? Not God. <laughs> in fact, God reminds us in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for correction and instruction and righteousness and such. The man of God can be thoroughly equipped. God isn't silent. He's given us these things. He's given us truth in the word of God so we can understand future events. We can know beforehand with confidence and certainty. Just like we know how we're saved, just like we know other things that have been written and have proven to be true, we, this prophecy can alleviate fear and being swept about in a, the culture of the day. I don't know what to believe, etc., because the word of God in this prophecy impresses us with who he is, his omniscience, his power, his sovereignty. It encourages us as we see what is going to happen and who's going to win and how it ultimately finishes. It encourages us where we're going to be during the worst of it if we understand the rapture. So it's very practical and it's very powerful. In 2 Timothy 1.7, we won't turn there, but God says that God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. That's, our, that's, that's the author of, who's not the author of confusion, rather. This is God, the author of love and power and of a sound mind. And certainty in the scriptures and knowing. We know what's going to happen. We know how it's going to unfold. We see these things and what a difference that can make for us. So as we're going to look at some things about prophecy, uh, just some terms just to quick remind ourselves of what is prophecy. It's communication of a divine message through a human being, and it's typically involving predictions, things about future stuff. Uh, that's the general idea of prophecy. Uh, we study eschatology. That's a term that means doctrines dealing with the last days, the study of last things. So that's what we're going to get into. And so here's a basic a chart. This is an overview. I just want to quickly go through some of these events and then look at Second Peter 3 and how it is fitting in practical ways. So this chart is just something that we've used in Duluth, and it's just a simple overview thing. 
And if you can understand this chart, and you have, uh, and you have confidence in the things of this chart, um, boy, what certainty you can have, and how this can so help just the flow of things coming, and it's not overly complicated. Uh, you don't have to, I know that prophecy and nuances and getting into the weeds of it can sometimes be really intimidating, but this is just an overview, correct? And this should not be, by the grace of God, not intimidating. In fact, we'll just look at four, we'll highlight four different areas in this chart that we will go from one as we walk through. And if you can just have a grasp with these four things that are going to happen and that flow, how that can be of such value or benefit to you. The first one is the church age. And this is, of course, where we are right now. We understand that after Jesus Christ was died and was buried and resurrected, he, 50 days later he began the church. And the church is the f- structure that we are in now in terms of the uh, living body of Christ. In fact, go with me to Ephesians chapter 2. And we'll just look at a couple of verses there in Ephesians 2 about the church. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 2, after that Awesome passage about being saved by grace through faith and not of our works, etc. Immediately following that in verse 11, Paul writes, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles, as he's writing to Gentiles, that you Gentiles physically who were called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hand. So the circumcision would be referring to the Jews. That at that time you were without Christ, you were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. Other than that, you're doing okay. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And notice it's through Christ, it's through his blood, and we are now in Christ. Christ Jesus. These Gentiles who were once separate and far off are now in Christ. And if we go on in verse um, 16, uh, excuse me, yeah, verse 16, we read that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, as he's referring again to the Gentile and the Jew, reconciled together into one body. And then going on in verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So this, though it doesn't say the word church, this is describing the church, the body of Christ, in which Jew and Gentile, whoever has put their faith in Christ and the blood of Christ and the gospel, are one in Christ, this this spiritual body. And who is the head? We know from other passages that Jesus Christ is the head. And therefore, anyone who becomes a believer, no matter when or where, they become part of the body of Christ, the universal church, which will be expressed in local churches like this one here in this location. So that is why it's amazing as we go to Africa, for example, or I've had the privilege of being in a few other places in Central America, etc., that you go and you start, you get introduced, you meet someone in your conference or whatever, you meet other believers, and you have instant rapport with them. And you have instant commonality and a warmth and a friendship immediately. Why? Because we're part of the same body because we have the same lord and we follow the same truth and though we are learning and understanding it perhaps there's different cultural nuances or whatever we are ultimately united in christ
And it's awesome, isn't it? And you've experienced that. When you go to other parts of the country, or you're on vacation, whatever, and you run into believers in some other place, and how, how you immediately have that report. So this is the church, the church age. God is building his church, and when people get saved, they become a part of that church. And so this is what amazing grace, isn't it, to bring that together. And when is this church going to end, this church age? We don't know for sure. But we know that what we're looking for prophetically, as we see on the chart, is the rapture. And the rapture is something that is promised and revealed in 1 Thessalonians 4 uh, and, and uh, followed by this tribulation period. We know that the rapture is the next event. We also know that the th- next event then after that is the tribulation. A seven-year period of total judgment and chaos on planet Earth. And that seven-year tribulation is exact seven years. There's a start button and a stop button managed by God. And that start button actually doesn't start with the rapture technically it starts with the signing of a peace treaty of the one who will be known as the Antichrist that he makes with Israel. And that will happen soon after the rapture. When that treaty is signed, boom, we hit play. And seven years later, boom, we hit the end and Christ returns. During that seven-year tribulation, there will be judgment upon earth as it's being, uh, all, this is where you're going to read about Armageddon and 666 and the Antichrist and all of these things. That's going to be a place of total chaos and judgment and turmoil, a time. But where are you as a believer in Jesus Christ? You are in heaven. You are taken out. We escape all of that as we are with Christ in heaven during the seven years on earth. And that's tremendously good news. So we realize then that all that we read about in Revelation, yet future and this awful times and things, we will not be here. And amazingly, during that tribulation, people will still get saved, particularly in the first half, and there will still be the the, the grace of God evident and manifest. Following that seven-year tribulation, we know then that Jesus Christ will return all the way to the earth. We read of that in Revelation 19. Much of the Old Testament prophecy is also about this time of the return of Christ, and he sets up a thousand-year kingdom right here on earth where he will be presiding over a new uh, Jerusalem, and he will be be the king, and there will be a thousand years where there is righteousness reigning with Christ on earth. And this is a kingdom that's been promised to the people of Israel through the Abrahamic covenant. This is a, they've been promised a king, they've been promised a land or a kingdom, and they've been promised a blessing, which, in, which starts at the beginning of the kingdom age. So again, not wanting to get into all the details, can you see the flow, though? We're in the, the church age. Right now, we are called upon to share the gospel, and that then, as people get saved, uh, when the church is completed, she'll be raptured, and then we'll have the seven-year tribulation, followed by the kingdom. Think of the church, uh, it's not a literal building, but think of it as a building. And in this time during the church age, we think, obviously, we are very at toward the end of it. And so it's like we're st- God's still putting some shingles on the roof, but when the last shingle goes on, the church will be raptured. And that shingles, they, gets, they go on in, through, our, uh, through evangelism and people getting saved. And that is what we're to be um, putting an emphasis on. Not, not the world around us, but people that need to get saved and become, have a new eternity future 
because of Christ. All right, so the return of the kingdom, is go, or excuse me, after the kingdom, there's going to be uh, something that's going to happen. Because as you see the chains here, um, at the beginning of the kingdom, the Bible tells us that Satan is actually bound. And he is bound for almost a thousand years, or the entirety of that kingdom. He and the demons, the occult, all of it. And this is really significant because what this means is human beings are living on this planet Earth with Jesus Christ reigning, with external righteousness constant. There's no curse. Environmentally, everything is much, much better. This is the best times Earth will have known since the Garden. Correct? And then Satan is allowed to be loosed at the very end of a thousand years of near-perfect earth. And what happens? He's able to attract and draw, so it doesn't say exactly how many, but a large amount of human beings that will immediately run to his side and say, let's you know, dethrone God, get rid of this Jesus. So, that's stunning, isn't it? Because when people come into the kingdom, we know that there's the resurrection of the Old Testament saints. Many people entering the kingdom are glorified and do not have a sin nature, etc. But there are many people that enter the kingdom from the tribulation that are not resurrected, and they will still procreate, they will still have families, there will still be many people born, in fact, probably at a rapid pace without the curse. So we'll have throngs of people on earth that need to, just like anyone else in all of the, uh, human history, that will need to put their faith in Jesus Christ for, for salvation and forgiveness. I mean, it should be a lot easier because he's right there. <laughs> but they'll need to depend or rely or bend their knee or bow by faith and say we still need a Savior. And that's hard for us to do. <laughs> And humanity, much of humanity is not going to do it. I, I always illustrate it. It's like a, a teenager in a, a house with a strict father or mother. Um, you'll do this, you'll do this, and they externally say, yes, yes, we do this, yes. And inside they're thinking, you big jerk, I can't stand you. <laughs> right? And so there's this external obedience, there's this internal seething, and after a thousand years and many, many, many people, this is what we see. And it's significant because... Satan and the demons have all been shut up and locked away for a thousand years. So they're not the problem. Sometimes you get in certain circles, of, well, even of Christians, where they just put so much emphasis. Satan did this and the demons did this. And it's like this is, if you're not going to have any of that. So where's our problem? Well, Jeremiah 17 will hint at that. Can't really see it, but it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You see, we're our problems ourselves. We have a sin nature within us that we inherited from Adam way back. And that in, sin nature has a me first, I'll do what I want kind of mentality. And hates to be told what to do or hates to be dependent. And that's our fundamental problem. And yet God reaches into this world of rebels like us and continuously woos us and appeals to us through his love. Because that's what can subdue a sin nature is unconditional acceptance and love and the grace of God 
After the church age, we have the seven-year tribulation, we have a thousand-year kingdom, and then we have what we call the great white throne where all the unsaved of all the ages will have their, their opportunity uh, to understand how they were deserving of the wrath that's coming. They will be put into the lake of fire, and we have the new heavens and the new earth. So there's your four things. Can we understand that? Is that super overwhelming? I hope not. Yes, I can't do that. I hope it's not. I hope we can just see it's rather straightforward that we have, uh, we're in the church age that has an un, uncertain, we don't know when it's going to end, but it's coming, we are all uh, understood even biblically to think of it as very soon. Uh, this will be followed by a seven-year tribulation. This will be followed by the return of Jesus Christ, a thousand-year kingdom, which will be followed by a final reckoning and a whole new earth that lasts forever. So, certainty. Do you know these things? We could have spent time, as you know, tons and tons of time and looked at many, many verses and, you know, put all that. But we can know this. We know how it's going to end. We know who wins. We know what's going to happen in that sense. So what is the impact as we now go to 2 Peter chapter 2? This is designed to have a great positive impact in our life. So in 2 Peter chapter 2, we'll begin reading in verse... uh, Verse 3. And I just have what we did here uh, with our students in Africa is we um, try to help encourage them to be exegetes and ask a lot of questions. So we would just, you know, put this chapter in some sections and put in some questions that they would then find the answer to, and and we went that way. So that's what you're going to see up here. So we read in verse 3, these are talking about, first of all, in verse 1, he says, Beloved. It's interesting in 2 Peter chapter 3, he's going to use that phrase beloved four times, which is an emphasis then. Who is he talking to? Believers in Christ. He's talking to you and me if you're saved here this morning. Beloved. He's writing these things so that we can have our minds put or stirred up in the minds by way of reminder. Verse 2, that you might be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. So here's what you're to know, verse 3. Knowing this, first, that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lust. So we ask, who is the subject of verse 3? And he's talking about scoffers. So scoffers will come, and I want you to be aware of that, Peter is saying. And the scoffers are those who are mocking and are disdainful, kind of just, yeah, with the word of God, they just dismiss it. They make fun of it or whatever. So the scoffers are going to come. When are they going to come? They're going to come in the last days. So that's yet future, and this is obviously... What, how do we d- d- interpret exactly the last days? Well, eschatologically, we would say this is going to be sometime maybe right before the rapture or during the tribulation, you know, then. And they're coming. Scoffers are coming. And how do they walk and what will they call into question? Verses 3 and 4. They are, we are to know this. By the way, can we know that with certainty? Verse 3. Yes. That's what Peter is saying. He's writing these things to you. Holy prophets have said this. This is truth. Now, know this, and know the scoffers are coming in the last days, and they are walking according to their own lusts. And, verse 4, they're saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So they're going to come walking according to their own lusts, which means their own agenda, their own desires. This is an unsubmissive, not submissive to the will of God or the word of God in any way. 
their own agenda. That's how they're walking. And what are they calling into question? The return of Christ. That's central truth. And they are mocking and scoffing it. And how do they forget the basic truth here in verse 5? We see, for this they willfully forget. So they are choosing to forget. To be willfully means deliberately. They deliberately are brushing aside, ignoring and forgetting things that God is saying. So, we're to know this. This is coming in the last days. Perhaps we're in them now. And so, they willfully forget. And what is it that they are forgetting? They're forgetting how the heavens came into existence. Because he goes on now in verse 5 and says, they are forgetting that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water. So he's referring to the creation event and it is by the word of God. And he's going to put emphasis on the word of God numerous, several times here in our passage as we continue on. So the scoffers are really scoffing and rejecting the word of God. And they're deliberately forgetting, deliberately ignoring that it was that's how God created. By his word, thus saith the Lord. God said, God spoke, and it happened in Genesis 1. We don't have time to look at any of those verses, but we know that. And so, the heavens that were of old, the earth standing out of water and in the water, they came about by the word of God. So how would Romans 1, 18 through 21 fit here? And so let's turn there for a minute. Leave a marker here. We'll be back. And let's turn to Romans chapter 1. Because we're going to see that what Paul is saying in Romans 1 is very similar then to what Peter is saying in 2 Peter 3. And sometimes we have an understanding of Romans 1 or that might help us understand 2 Peter 3 as well. So, Romans 1, we know in verse 18 that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Notice the wrath of God is a legitimate indignation from a holy God. And he is indignant and it's carried out against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, ungodliness is the idea of without regard for God. It's the mental side of things. Ungodliness is we're saying, I will not retain God in my knowledge. I have my own way of thinking, my own understanding. I don't need a God. Unrighteousness then flows out of that wrong thinking. So in Romans 1, if we go on, we'll see he's going to describe this ungodliness in verse 19 because what may be known of God is manifest to us. God has shown it to them since his creation of the world his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. So they're without excuse. Notice the ungodliness going on because although they knew God, that's a premise and an assumption of every human being, They did not glorify him as God. Remember Jeremiah 9? Let not the wise man glory in this. They choose the glory in these other things and not glory that they know and understand him. So they do not glorify him as God. Therefore, they're not thankful. And their futile mind and their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. They professed to be wise. They became fools. They changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed and creeping things. All of this reflects a state of mind. All of this reflects an ungodly thinking. 
Later in the chapter, he then says they, did, they do a lot of things that shouldn't even be mentioned. And he makes a list of sins, the unrighteousness. So God's wrath first is carried out against this ungodliness of mind that says scoffs and says mocks and says no. And then unrighteousness follows later in the chapter. So do you see the connection? This is exactly what Peter's writing about, these scoffers in 2 Peter. So we can go back there. Um, but notice what, before we go in verse 18, I forgot to mention, what they do is they suppress the truth, Romans 1. So we suppress the truth. And that is exactly what we see then back in 2 Peter, what Peter is addressing with these mockers, these scoffers, how they're deliberately choosing to forget and they're not recognizing the word of God. They're suppressing truth, holding it back, keeping it away. So do you see how these are very similar things? So both then become an example of suppression of truth and not having regard for God. So here's the problem with the mockers then, and they're deliberately ignoring the word of God. They're actually suppressing it, have no regard for it. And we're not going to turn there, but Hebrews 11.3 ties in here to the creation part where God says that he created everything out of nothing, right? Spoke the world into existence. So that brings us now to... Um, 2 Peter 3.6, if we'll turn there. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So in verse 6, he is describing a different event. What event do you think he's describing there? The heavens that were perished by the flood. So notice the verse, verse 6, though, this was by the same word. So the word of God that spoke the world into existence, that authority, that same God and his word and his authority has brought about the flood. And they're choosing to forget this. They're choosing to ignore that. And so he says in verse 6, by which, the by which would be the word of God. So verse 6, by which is referring to the word in verse 5. So by which, the word of God, in which the heavens were of old and the earth, etc., by that word, the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. So there's two things they're suppressing, ignoring, and mocking, and scoffing. Creation and the flood. So that brings us to verse 7. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So now we see, in verse 7, how are the current heavens and earth preserved? Notice, by the same word. So there's three times now the word of God. The word of God spoke the world in the creation. The word of God is involved in the flood. And by the same word, authority, power of God, everything's being held together and waiting for a future judgment. So the current heavens and earth are reserved for what in this passage? Fire. And we know that at the end of the thousand years in the great white throne, there will be total destruction of everything in a new heaven and a new earth. So the end is coming. And God is not going to allow this earth to be destroyed because he's going to do it. So do you think we can, as humans, destroy this earth? We cannot. 
Now, we have been given all the way back in Genesis dominion and responsibility, and we're to exercise that and be wise stewards of this earth. So can we certainly damage the earth and be poor stewards? Absolutely. And I think a case could be made we've largely done that. But can we destruct, destroy it? No. Because God is keeping it held together because he's going to push the button and do that on his timetable when he says it's ready. So it's the word of God that is preserving, or excuse me, reserving for fire this day of judgment, which is going to come until the day of. It's going to be preserved, rather, until the day of judgment. So God is saying there's a future judgment and nothing's going to impact this world in its ultimate total sense until then. So he is holding it together. And who doesn't fare very well on this day of future judgment? The ungodly, the scoffers. He calls them here the ungodly men. So we could say ungodly men equals scoffers, right? Same idea. That's Romans 1 again, the ungodliness of Romans 1.18. So three times the word of God is highlighted. And we see that it's an ungodly mentality that says, I don't need God. It's scoffing, mocking. That's the problem there. And so he's telling them, look, this is going to happen. So just like in the past, God, just like how God created and started everything, and in the past, he brought the flood. In the present, he's holding everything together. Guess where we're going in the verses ahead? In the future, he's going to bring the ultimate destruction. And it's all by the word of God. So to have this kind of flippant attitude toward the word of God, well, it's not really wise. <laughs> That's what Peter's trying to get across. So, we get to verse 8. But, that's a word of contrast, right? So he's been describing the scoffers, the scoffers, and ignoring the word of God. But in contrast, beloved, second time for beloved, you, the believer, beloved, you're different. So beloved, do not forget this one thing. Do not forget what I'm going to say, which is the word of God. And so the but, which is a contrast word, now clearly has the ungodly or the scoffers on one hand being contrasted with who? You and me, the beloved. And so we have an entirely different attitude and perspective toward the word of God or the things that Peter is going to now say. And that's a healthy for us to be challenged. Like, boy, it, it's really to our benefit to bow our knee to the, to the word of God because we're obviously bowing our knee to God, the author, who's in charge and in control of everything. So may we have that desirous perspective as we see then he says but this contrast word now what does not forget in verse 8 contrast us with back in verse 5 remember the scoffers willingly forget they willingly disregarded so let us then willingly not forget <laughs> amen so here we are then the contrast in verse 8 and so we are responding and what is it in particular then that he is bringing to our attention to? He says that one day is as a thousand years with the Lord. You see, this truth has something to do with the scoffing, as we know. The scoffing is, is basically are saying, ah, where's the Lord? It's been thousands of years. Pfft. He's not coming. So he just says this is clearly probably addressing the main argument the scoffers are making. 
hey, one day with the Lord is as a thousand years. Now, don't get out a calculator and start trying to figure out because he doesn't say one day is a thousand years. He says it's as a thousand years. So what is he trying to communicate? That God is eternal. Time is nothing to God. Okay? He's Lord over time. He's Lord over everything. So don't forget that. And don't let that, that nagging, complaining mocker have that impact on you. What do you think slack means as he gives the reason here in verse 9? He says, going on, he says, this is what we're not to forget as well, part of that. He says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but instead he's long-suffering toward us. And he's not willing that any should perish, that all should come to repentance. So, Slack is the idea of holding back or hesitating. And he's saying God is not slack like hesitating and holding back out of any kind of uncertainty or out of any kind of like, I don't know if I should do this. It's not that at all. He is actually hesitating for a very certain purpose, which is what, as verse 9 carries out. He's building his church. He doesn't want anyone to get lost, be being lost. He's a patient, long-suffering, loving God who's putting up with all this mocking, which must be such an irritant, because he loves the world so intensely that he gave his own son, bankrupted heaven, to have Christ pay that price so that now, as a living, resurrected Savior, he can offer us life. So God is not is hesitating because it's part of his attribute of love and his grace. And so that's how Peter explains in verse 9. So we move to verse 10. Going on, Peter now says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heaven will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent fear, uh, heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Ah, what's he relying on here? He's saying his promise that was mentioned in verse 9, Jesus will come. Count on it. Certain this is going to come. This is the end. You know how it's going to finish. You know who's going to win. You know what it's going to result in. Know that. The day of the Lord will come. Day of the Lord is a reference to a general prophetic period. And Peter kind of, there's some things here that would cause us to think is, you know, the the, the rapture, the second coming, the end of the uh, great white throne. They're all kind of blurred in here, I think, in an eschatical. I don't think he's trying to be precise. He's just saying, no, this is all under control. And it's all going to come. And the end of it at the end of verse 10 is everything's going to basically have a massive explosion where he'll destroy the heavens and the earth. And we see again, why is he long-suffering? Why is he holding back on this? We know because he wants everyone to be saved. We saw that in verse 9. So verse 10, we saw then what will certainly come. The day of the Lord. I jumped ahead of myself, but we already went over that. And what happens to the heavens and the earth? They will completely be passed away or burned up and destroyed. So that brings us to the end of verse 10, and we get to verse 11, and now we get the most important part. In fact, you know, that's why we use about 85, 90% of our time to get here. That's good preaching, right? Because now 
This is where we should have most of our time spent. This is why it matters. This is why knowing prophecy is designed to have a practical impact on our heart and our life. And it starts with the word, therefore. Um, And before we get to that, I think... uh, Oh, we see in verse 11, how many things will escape? How many things will not be... How many, what will escape this destruction? And the answer is nothing. Everything will dissolve, it says there. See in verse, um, verse 11, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, certainty, everything's going to be destroyed. The works will be burned up. There's no exception. Everything's going to go. Everything. The smallest steps in your office desk drawer right? To your most valuable possession in your garage or wherever. It's all gone. There's no future in these things. Let's use a little video clip here that might help explain this, if I can... stoves, fireplaces. I feel like it's kind of in my blood. My name is Jesse Horn, and I am the founder of Smoke and Flame Firewood Company, North America's only premium handcrafted firewood manufacturer. I started Smoke and Flame in 2012 after growing frustrated by seeing poor quality firewood flooding the market. I wanted to bring craftsmanship back to firewood production. My criteria for sourcing logs is simple. I only source logs that'll give me the best firewood in the world. That's it. Each piece of firewood is unique. It has its own personality. It tells a story which is something we, we definitely want to respect. Um, my name is Carl O'Brien, and I, uh, I'm an apprentice here at Smoke and Flame uh, Firewood. <sighs> Working with Jesse is, he's an artist. I will not sell a single piece of firewood until it is absolutely ready. And I don't care how long that takes. The way I look at it is I wanted to incorporate a lot of the stuff they did in the old world with a lot of new and modern technology. (laughs) Combining those two worlds, basically slowing down, putting in the time and craftsmanship into making a quality, quality product. I consider myself a bit of a storyteller, but my words are wood. People just can't believe it's finally happening, you know? For so long, it's just been a pile of wood at a gas station. Now it's like, wow, someone's actually taking the care into the wood we're going to burn. They love it. My name's Jesse Horn, and I make firewood. So hopefully the application's obvious there. <laughs> Isn't that what Peter is saying here? It's all going to burn. Nothing remains. And so therefore, 
should we be like this? <laughs> no. He's going to say now in verse 11, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? The coming reality of all things being dissolved can do what to us, is the idea. And it changes us as we see this reality and certainty of what's coming and what's, what's in the future. And it can change us into what manner of persons we ought to be, particularly in holy conduct and godliness. Notice in Romans, he had it the other way around. We had ungodliness and then the conduct. But notice they're associated. So if we're not mocking and if we're embracing the word of God, if we're standing on it by faith, if we have certainty, boy, this starts to make an impact in our life. Truth impacts, and faith in that truth makes that difference. So, since everything's going to happen, we should be looking for the return of Christ. Isn't that what he says now in verse 12? After the therefore in verse 11, this is what we take home with us today, what manner of persons we can be, what should we be doing? We've got a participle looking for and hastening the coming day of God. Verse 13 tells us the basis of our looking is according to what? As we are looking for and hastening the coming of the day because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, verse 13, we according to his promise. Here's another reference to what? The word of God. The word of God. So as we know, according to his promise, we then have a basis for how we shape what we're anticipating and looking for. And we're not mocking and we're not scoffing and we're seeing with certainty. And this has an impact on our day-to-day thinking and our day-to-day life. According to his promise. And where do you find his promise? Again, we mentioned from back in verse 5, 6, and 7. It's in the word of God. By that same word came the creation, the past flood, the present earth that's going to be reserved for future destruction. God's in charge. (laughs) And we can be people that are thrilled with this coming reality, this, this what God is doing. And so, what is so thrilling, if we're thrilled about it, Verse 13, nevertheless, we, according to his promise, we look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Why are we so thrilled? Because that's where righteousness dwells, which means what? That's where God is. Can't wait. (laughs) Bring it, bring the end, please. Because then we're face to face with God, with Jesus Christ. And so the presence of God, this perfection, eternal state where we're glorified. And so we're looking. Notice, according to his promise, we're looking. In fact, verse 14, therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things. Now, obviously, it's a reference in time, looking forward. But couldn't we also take this as how we're looking (laughs) I'm looking forward to this. I don't have dread and fear and hiding. And I, you know, no, come, Lord Jesus. I'm hastening the day, is what he adds here in 
verse, uh, verse 12. Hastening, come. So we're looking with excitement, not with dread and fear. We're looking forward to these things in a very positive way. And as we're looking forward to these things, Peter's going to give us two imperatives now that are words of instruction for us to be taken into account. As we're looking forward to these things, verse 14, the first one is be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. And secondly, consider the long-suffering of our Lord that it is salvation. So notice practically, we want to leave here with something in our mind. What is it the Lord encouraging me here? To be diligent. To be diligent, which means to be um, uh, just the opposite of mocking. Just the opposite of scoffing, right? To dig in and be aware of and be involved in your thinking. It's a mental awareness. And to be diligent in, in taking this in and be found uh, by a result to be found in peace without spot. And secondly, consider how God's patience is opportunity for people to get saved. So, we know these things, we have certainty, may we be diligent to keep aware and not forgetting and be put into remembrance those future things and the realities that go with it and how that can conform us to be these, the kind of people we can be. Amen? And secondly then, realize people can still get saved. This is it. This is the calling. We can go and present to the world and encourage them the escape of Christ, the redemption in him. And so he then makes some things, says some things about um, Paul and his epistles in verse 15 and 16, but let's jump to verse 17 and finish this. As we know these things that are coming, he says in verse 17, another practical, another practical thing, since we know this beforehand. And two more imperatives now are given. So you think it's important that we understand we know things beforehand? Yeah. And have that certainty? Because now what comes out of that? Now, since we know that, verse 17, and he says, beloved, again, just like he did in verse 14. So there's the four beloveds, verse 1, and, and then here is 14 and 17, where the third and fourth reminding us over and over in this passage, we're beloved. You're a, you're, we've got a, a rich status and heritage here in Christ. Therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, number one, beware. It's kind of similar to the previous diligent. Beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness and go cleaning up your firewood and be led away with the air of the wicked. Everyone has our own personal firewood, don't we? <laughs> so beware. Knowing these things keeps us focused. There's nothing wrong with firewood. We probably don't have to spend all that time on it, though. That's <laughs> the idea. So beware. And so knowing these things ahead of time causes us to not beware and not fall from our steadfastness standing on these truths. And then secondly, grow grow in the grace of God and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where it's all at. Grace. Grace is not... Grace is everything. It's like the air we breathe. We're not going to survive without it. 
and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. That's the privilege of learning the Word of God, learning the heart of God, the mind of Christ. So we see ourselves as he sees us. We see the future as he describes it. We are impacted by these truths. It becomes part of our thinking process of how we recite and talk to ourselves even. And we have this hope of grace and glory. And how long does that glory last? Forever. How long do we look forward to? What do we have ahead of us? Forever. Forever and ever and ever. So, note how God is awesome, powerful, majestic, and sovereign. He creates and then he destroys. Has his purpose. It's not random or just uh, arbitrary. No, he's a God who's personal and loving and caring And his desire is for everyone to be saved. He's providing tons of time for people to respond and for the gospel to get out. And then personally promises us a righteous future based on what he does. So how does knowing prophecy affect your daily life? How does knowing these four events and this flow? Well, just, you can conclude here, we can have hope. And you can have assurance and confidence. And you can be rightly motivated. And you can have opportunity to share the good news. We have hope. I know what's going to happen. I know what team I'm on. I know how it's going to end. I know where I'm going to be. And I have assurance and confidence. This gives me a bounce in my step, a different perspective. As I have a message for the world, I'm an ambassador on this earth to tell people of this earth about a different kingdom. Because I'm representing that. And so I don't want to be all entangled in the firewood. I just want to know enough so that I can communicate wisely and display the love of Christ and the good news of what's available. And that's the opportunity we could have. So certainty. Certainty filling us with hope and confidence and assurance motivated by this good news. But ask yourself, how do we communicate with optimism if we're overwhelmingly pessimistic? How do we share the gospel as easily as we may share a conspiracy theory? How are we really motivated if we're always frustrated and complaining about how things are here? Firewood. How do we share the love of Christ and the gospel if we really don't like people? How do we advance the truth while clinging to lies? You see, it all comes down to faith. God's word, he doesn't lie, right? I can be anchored. I don't know what to believe. Yeah, those are previous things, but I know this. And I can camp right here. And I know how it's going to turn out. I know how it's going to end. I know where I'm going to be. God's word tells about our future. And it's good to know about our future because that's where we're going to spend the rest of our life, right? And we look for that blessed hope and that glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. He is coming, be certain. That time will come, so let's embrace that. And anything that happens on this earth that seems like it's getting worse or someone's manipulating the firewood in such a way, praise God, means the day's closer, right? Right? means our time is closer. 
and we'll be with him and his glory as we see in verse 18. To him be the glory both now and forever. So, what kind of people we can be? Godly in our thinking, shaped by the word of God. And looking forward with hope and optimism to the future. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for these words and just these reminders of what a privilege we have to know things. To know things with certainty from your word. To know things that are going to happen and are going to unfold. And we see that in every aspect, every part of that future chart, it's thumbs up for us as a believer in you. And it's something that we can be excited about. So give us wisdom in this current world to just stand firm, to not be moved away from our steadfastness, to have even a message of hope and good news and of the love of God who's, we see your patience, we see your desire that none should be lost. And so we see your heart, and may that be ours as well. So thank you for that we can study these things and even uh, just take all this in. We just trust you'll use your word now and, and shape us to be that kind of a person before you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.